Hey everyone, it's Joe Graves here. Welcome to uh, Easter uh, 2022. I do want to let you know that um, we had some technical difficulties at church today where we lost power right at the end of the sermon. So um, uh, we've got the sermon from today and, uh, and what I've done is I've just recorded some of the basic thoughts that got cut off when we lost power. Um, for the most part, you won't notice that big of a difference other than the audio might just sound different. So if you're like, oh, what, what happened to the audio? Why does it sound different? Well, it's because it was recorded later. So I hope that uh, in this you can find and meet uh, the, the risen Christ. Uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed. I sat down to write my Easter sermon uh, this week, uh, or or, uh, because I rewrote it, the one I was going to write, give, I decided was not what I was going to do, so that that happens. So I I, I sat down and I I was thinking about, I I was like, I got to do, this is not what I'm supposed to do, so I got to come up with something new. And uh, um, I started to think about what makes a good Easter sermon. Uh, There's a lot of pressure uh, on me this morning, isn't there? Um, You know, uh, maybe maybe not, you don't think so, but I I feel a little bit of pressure, you know. You got to bring your best uh, sermon to the game. This is the World Cup of worship services, and uh, he is, you know, he is risen. Yeah, I mean, which, you know, part of me is like, what else is there to say? So, have a good week, everyone. Well, to really help me manage my own expectations, uh, I came up with a short list of things that make a good uh, uh, Easter sermon. I put it as a list. I think Heidi preached uh, about how lists are helpful, so I put them down so I could cross them off as we get to them. Um, Here's the list. Um, I thought, uh, just, you know, it's all about managing expectations today. Um, So this, I'm going to help you all manage your expectations of me. Uh, Here's the first one. you got to start off with something humorous. Um, You know, just... You gotta lighten the load, help people get you know comfortable, help me you know relax a little bit. Um, uh, you gotta you know uh, that's what it's all about. Get our guards down. I've also often think of humor as sort of a a way to uh, uh, secretly inject us with truth without making us uncomfortable. Uh, the second thing is you gotta um, you gotta do something to welcome visitors. Um, or, or keep, make sure that we're visitor friendly because it's common knowledge that Easter has more than usual visitors of people uh, on, on Easter. And sometimes uh, it's also common knowledge that people, there's, there's a whole population that only comes to church on Easter and Christmas. And you kind of got to figure out how you're going to deal with it. There's a couple ways you can deal with that. One, you can, you can talk about it in a bad way and really try to make people feel convicted. Um, it's not what I'm going to do today, so you're all right. The other thing is you could kind of like name that and make it make people feel fine about it, because you know you don't need more shame in your life. Um, the other option is you can just not talk about it at all, which is what I plan to do. Um, <laughs> just don't bring it up, and then you won't make anyone feel awkward. Start off with something humorous. I'm glad you guys laughed at that, because that's the only joke I have today. But we've got it covered, so successful. Um, All right, number three, teach something new. You know, you want to learn something new. Or if you can't teach something new, offer a new perspective on something old. This is easily the hardest because you already know the story and you know how it ends. But a great sermon is going to try to introduce something new, uh, teach you something you didn't already know. Um, That's where the bar is, and uh, I'm going to try to meet it today. Number four, um, share at least one inspirational story, poem, or quote. You know, you got to help people feel the story, help people make it personal, you know, bring it into this century. It happened so long ago. And if you, you can't do that by, uh, you know, sharing a story, at least an inspirational quote or a poem or something. So I'll see what I can do. And finally, five, essential to a good Easter sermon, 
offer an altar call. You know, give people a chance to come forward and to receive Jesus for themselves. And the more people who come forward, the more successful the Easter service, it turns out. And included in this step is the assumption that the pastor will post about it later that day on naming how many people came forward to accept Jesus or to receive Jesus. So that's what makes a great sermon, um, humor, an original idea, inspirational story or poem, and an altar call. That's where the bar has been set. Those are the expectations. And uh, I'm going to try to meet every single one of those in my own way. So in, pre uh, uh, in preparation for today's sermon, I learned a new term. And it's kind of hard to say. So I have, I've, I've had to say it quite a bit the last 48 hours to try to prepare myself for saying it. It's a, the term is this. We'll put it up on the screen here. Um, I, I, in fact, it's so hard to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say it wrong. And so I'm going to have you guys help me. Uh, I pulled up the pronunciation of it. Can we play that real quick? Anagnorisis. Anagnorisis. I think of a, a dinosaur named Anna that's ignored. <laughs> anagnorisis. It's an anagnorisis. And uh, so can we say it together? You try to say it. Yeah, and uh, I can't promise I'm going to say it right any time after this, but I'm sure going to try anagnorisis. Here's what it means, though. Um, anagnorisis means it's the point in a play, novel, etc., in which a principal character recognizes or discovers another character's true identity or the true nature of their own circumstances. Now, how many of you have never heard this term before? Raise your hand. All right, teach something new. <laughs> Check. Anagnorisis, it's a method of storytelling. It goes back to the beginning of stories. And in this style of storytelling, it's older than Jesus' life here on earth. It's old, and it's still used today. One of the earliest versions is, uh, by, uh, been, that's been preserved is about a Greek god. And with one hard word to say, I'm not going to say his name, but some of you will recognize his name. I think Freud references him, so you know where this story is going. But this Greek god plays a tragic hero. In it, he kills, uh, uh, he kills another man and then takes that man's wife. And at the end, he learns that the man he killed was his father. And the wife he took was his mother. And in the revealing of that true identity of that character, welcome to Easter, everyone. <laughs> I didn't write the story. It's a Greek story. It's a real story. You, some, I, uh, James said he read it in high school. Maybe you did, too. What's the name again? Yeah, yeah there you go. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but in the revealing of the true identity, it changes your whole perspective of the story, and it becomes a hero. You know, it, it, here's the thing. Um, uh, <laughs> That's probably one of the worst anagnorisis that you can think of, but there are other versions throughout history, and it's a device that's still used today. One of the most famous ones in our lifetime is probably this. Can you play that? Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. What? That's what we call, and let's say it together, anagnorisis. Yeah, 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 anagnorisis. Another one might be, uh, if you're familiar with the movie Sixth Sense, 
You know, the true identity of the main character is revealed at the end. I won't give it away, even though it's pretty old. You should know how it ends already. Um, uh, the big reveal at the end changes how we understand the whole story. And if it's used well, it makes the story unforgettable. Because we, we think about the story one way, and then at the end, we're like, oh my gosh, it was something else entirely. And then it sticks with us, and, and it, it impacts us, and it's like exciting, and you talk about it. Here's why I share this. The scripture reading we're going to look at today is a classic anagnorisis. Anagnorisis, yeah, something like that. It's pulling from some of these classic forms of storytelling to do exactly this. And so, in fact, it's so important to the story that to help us understand it and why scripture uses this technique, I've planned our own anagnorisis in worship today. This is true. We're going to an experience and an anagnorisis together if it goes well. Um, here's how it's going to work. At the end of the service, we will have an altar call because it can't be you know, a good Easter service without one. And by an altar call, I mean you're going invi to be invited to come forward to receive Jesus and uh, to the altar. And we'll have you come forward as a way of expressing your desire to follow Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not going to respond to an altar call, but you will. Not all of you, but most of you will. Um, that's my guess. And here's how it'll happen. I'll invite you to come forward as you feel led. And you'll get up and you'll come forward. It's going to happen. It, it might make more sense to those who are in person than those who are aligned, just FYI. But there will be a way for you online to participate as well. Now, I'm not, I'm not going uh, to make you. So don't worry. You won't be forced to do the altar call. Um, you can stay in your seat the whole time today. No pressure. But most of you will want to. And when you do, you'll... You know, you'll even be happy that you did. And I'm not going to point it out. So you have to now remember, when you're in the aisle and you're standing and waiting to come up, remind yourself, oh, that's what Joe meant. And when you do that, I want you to remember that feeling when something clicks. The reveal, you know, at the end, the feeling that that feeling is what this Bible story is all about. It, it, that's what Easter is all about. That's what it feels like to meet Jesus for the first time or the hundredth time. Hopefully, by the end, you'll see what I mean. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13, or you can follow along on the screen as it says right there. So, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Over the season of Lent, we've been looking at a number of encounters that people have had with Jesus. Today, we're going to look at another one, but since it's Easter, we, of course, are going to look at a resurrection encounter. In other words, an encounter that someone has with the resurrected Jesus. Um, Jesus died, he rose again, and then he appeared to people. And of all the appearances, there is one that some scholars view as the most complex, even the most beautiful. And one of the reasons is because it has an anagnorisis in it. Um, and, and so you can guess that it's going to be a pretty good story. So I'm not, I'm, I am going to edit the story slightly. So just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to put the real version on the screen so you know exactly what I'm editing. And I'm not actually messing with the text. don't want to make anyone uncomfortable today. But as I read it, I'm going to change the point of view a little just to make the anagnorisis kick a little harder, to drive the point home. It's the exact same story from a slightly different perspective. So here's how it starts. Jesus has died and people don't know whether he's come back again. Luke 24 verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Quite the walk. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they talked and discussed these things with each other. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, a stranger walked along with them, and they didn't recognize him. 
So two disciples they're, they're, of Jesus, they're walking. They weren't members of the 12 disciples per se, but they were part of that larger group that followed Jesus, and they're headed back home after the Passover. And after Jesus now, their leader is dead. And of course, they're talking about everything that happened. You know, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles, the trials, the cross, the death, the tomb. They're talking about it. Of course you would. That's what you do when you're, you know, all of that happened. You, now you're stuck on the road with someone for seven miles. You're talking about what's going on. And a person walks up, and from their point of view, they have no idea who this person is. They don't recognize this person. They've never met this person before in their life. They have no idea who the person is, but the stranger joins them along the road and jumps into their conversation. Next verse. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their voices downcast. One of them, named Cleophas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Hey, look at this stranger like he's an idiot. <laughs> don't you know anything? Where have you been? Are you the only person in the whole region of Jerusalem who hasn't watched the news? Which is how I feel every time something major happens in the world because I don't watch the news. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, didn't know that was happening. So the stranger asks, verse 19, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Have you not heard about Jesus? He's, he's kind of stolen the show of Passover. Everything surrounding Jesus' life would have been well talked about. And they go on to tell the stranger about Jesus. They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we hoped, it doesn't seem to be the case anymore, but we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And, and what is more, it is the third day, it's been three days already since all of this took place. Which is like, the rest of us are like, oh, that's a clue. They're just distraught. Jesus was going to be the one who saved them, the Messiah. But it turns out he wasn't. Instead of saving them, he died. And it's already been days at this point, so he's dead, dead. But they go on, it gets even more interesting. They say, verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us, which has a certain level of like, we don't believe them. <laughs> Just FYI, that's what's going on here. Some of the, our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of an angel. This has changed the story a little bit. They had seen an angel, but in this version, they're like, they must have had some vision of an angel. Once again, they're a little bit of a, I don't believe you, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. So, all they have to work on at this point is the testimony of some women. The other disciples, even their leader, Peter, hasn't seen Jesus alive, last they've heard. Which means Jesus probably isn't alive. You know, I mean, because there's a testimony of women. That's what's happening here. That's quite the story. How could the stranger not be familiar with it? Well, it turns out the stranger was familiar with it, because look what he says to them. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe, women, and all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that, he, that what was said in all the scriptures concerning Jesus. 
Well, this is kind of a bit of a surprise in the story. You know, that threw him for a little bit of a loop. They, they thought this guy wasn't in, in the know, but it turns out he actually knows a little bit more than them. It turns out the stranger seems to understand it better than they do. So they listen, and we're not told what he says, but we're told that he uses most of the Old Testament to explain who Jesus is. He references Moses, and maybe he compares Jesus to Moses as the one who would deliver his people, a, a liberator. He references the prophets, and maybe he talks about how Jesus speaks truth to power and stands up for justice and the poor and the orphan. He maybe he even references as others like Daniel and the lion's den and how Jesus was tossed in a tomb like Daniel was tossed in a tomb and our stone was rolled over it only to come back alive. Whatever he said, we learn that they, even though they have no idea who this stranger is, their hearts start to burn a little. We find this out later. And it all starts to make sense to them. And they're enjoying their time talking to this stranger so much that they don't want to part ways. So seven miles have passed now and they've gotten to where they're headed in Emmaus. Next verse. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly even. The evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. They wanted more of what this guy had to talk about. And I love this. In fact, let's just sit here for a second. Because the next verse, we're going to take us to the anagnorisis. Right? Where we're like, oh, the true identity. Which if you're reading the text, you already know. But these people didn't know yet. The anagnorisis happens next. So let's just, what, what, what needs to happen before the anagnorisis? Here's what. Before we get there, they invite him in. They insisted this stranger, who strangely warmed their hearts, stay with them. They insisted that this stranger come into their home. The Bible, as well as ancient literature, is filled with these stories of entertaining angels unaware goes back to the time of Abraham and a variety of other places, and that's what this is really kind of playing off of. They don't know who it is, but they can tell that there's something special here. They don't know, but their heart is strangely warmed. So they insisted he come and share a meal with him. They invited him in, and only after they invite him in does he reveal who he is. An important part, worthy of its own sermon. If you want an anagnorisis in your life, well, you have to want it, and you have to invite it. Next verse, verse 30. When, they, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. So the stranger offers them uh, the Lord's Supper. The, you know, they just left the Passover. They didn't need to celebrate the Passover for another year. But here the stranger breaks bread and takes it and offers it to them. And, and in that moment, something happens. Verse 34. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. It was Jesus all along. Yeah. Well, they were so worried that Jesus had let them down. They went on and on as they talked along the road about how they sure had hoped that it would be Jesus, the one that they were waiting for. But they were worried it must not be true because he had died and there was no proof that he was alive other than the witness of women. And all along, they were telling this to Jesus, the resurrected God. Ha! This is what we call an anagnorisis. Yeah. Here's the point. Why did Jesus keep his identity from these men? Besides the fact that it's a clever literary tactic. Why did Jesus keep his identity? For, why did he hide who he was? I think it's for a simple reason. I think it was for our benefit. For us right now, today. In this moment. And here's why I say that. There's an old saying that goes something like, you just had to be there, you know? You heard this before, right? 
And it's usually true. You just had to be there. You, you know, you can hear the story about someone giving birth, but it's not the same as being there, is it? <laughs> it's, it's not the same as if you were there. Even if you're the guy in the room, it's not the same. You can hear the story about your favorite team winning, you know, the Super Bowl tournament, whatever, but it's not the same if you weren't there. You can try to explain to your spouse that joke at work, but sometimes you just had to be there, you know? You had to be there. And when it comes to Jesus' death and resurrection, friends, we weren't there. In fact, in the grand scope of Jesus' followers throughout the last 2,000 years, only a, a few, very, very, very small percentage of people who followed Jesus over the last 2,000 years were actually there when it happened. And I think Jesus, or the Spirit of God, or the biblical writers, however you want to think about it, they knew that this was true and they had to deal with it. This would be a problem. And so they have this beautiful story about two disciples of Jesus who were there. <laughs> You know, when we sing the song, which we did on Good Friday, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The two guys would be like, yeah, I mean, sort of down the street or around the corner, you know, up in the hill, pretty close by. We were in the same city when it happened. You know, we were there. They were there. They heard about it firsthand. And yet when they ran into the resurrected Jesus, they didn't recognize him. Which tells us that being there wasn't that special. It didn't matter. In other words... You're not any closer to understanding who Jesus is because you were there than the fact that we're here 2,000 years later sitting in a pew on Easter morning. No closer to understanding. You won't understand who Jesus is simply because you watched it happen. The guards watched it happen and they didn't get it. To understand it, as Scripture talks about, you need your eyes opened, your heart opened, your mind opened, whatever body part makes the most sense for you. And that's why this story matters. These two disciples invite Jesus to dinner. He accepts and he breaks bread, not only as a symbol of his broken body, but as a promise that when we share in this meal, our eyes will be open too, just like theirs. I'm glad this story is here because on this side of Easter, after Jesus had died and risen again, there's a little bit of pressure to be happy, you know, to have it all figured out. The world's supposed to be different now. Jesus is risen. I, and I have to be honest, it's not always easy to see where Jesus is in this world. Even now. I've been doing this 15 years. And this is probably one of the hardest couple years where I was like, where's God in this? I don't see God working. Where is God here? It's not always easy to see where Jesus is in this world. And even now, I have trouble seeing God at work. And maybe you too. Maybe you, like me, have been traveling through life, and it's only later, you know, in those moments where we can finally slow down and sit and eat and enjoy the good things in life that we can actually see with our eyes what was there the whole time. Oh, wait, has, has Jesus been walking with me this whole time? It, it reminds me of this inspirational poem. Do you know which one I'm thinking about? The Footprints in the Sand. Ah. Oh. We're definitely a church that would quote that. I don't want to make fun of it too much. The, statistically, it should be in one of our bathrooms, so um, <laughs> hanging out. Just statistically. It ends by saying, you know, it's a story about Jesus walking with somebody, and then they, they look back on the path of life, and they see a place where there's only one set of footprints, and they say, but I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand, understand why. When I needed you the most, you would leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never, ever, during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. 
And I simultaneously laugh and get a little bit of a chill. It's a classic inspirational poem. Number four, share at least one inspirational story, poem, or quote. It's a little cheesy, uh, maybe a little overdone, and I'm tempted to make fun of it, but I won't, because here's the truth. In those seasons where you felt God had left you, and you felt you were alone, and you looked everywhere, and God was nowhere to be found, and you're like, Jesus is supposed to be alive. Where is he? I'm here to tell you the good news. God was there. And he was there every step of the way. And we might not know it, um, other than maybe a slight burning in our hearts, but God is there, and sometimes it takes sitting down to have dinner with each other in order for our eyes to be opened. Which is why we're going to end Easter today with communion. We're going to break bread together. Because of COVID, the bread's been broken already, pre-cut. And we're going to break bread together. And in a second, I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive this bread and cup, the body and blood of Jesus, to receive Jesus. And we do this, uh, we do this because this is what we've been given to help awaken our senses that Jesus is actually amongst us already. We don't come and take communion as a way to force God's presence into our lives. We do it so that we are reminded that Jesus is here already. The Spirit of Jesus is here already. The Spirit of God walked in with you and has been with you in that pew the whole time. And you might not be able to see it or feel it, but, 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 um, but right now should be your inaugurasis. The big reveal. And God has been here the whole time. Surprise. God's here. God hasn't left. God isn't dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we just give you thanks for meeting us in this space. Allow your Holy Spirit to fall on these gifts of bread and juice that they might be to us the body and blood of Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.